Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. We have a guest speaker here, Joel. Thank you so much for being with us. It's re- I've been really looking forward to hearing from you. I mentioned last week that he would be joining us. This man wrote the book, The Barefoot in Beth... Whoa. <laughs> Almost. The Barefoot Disciple, which that kind of works quite well. We all know that other book. Um, he is from Perth. He loves Jesus, the way he described it to us, which I found fascinating and I've never heard of before. He's, he likened it to a Facebook status um, in a relationship with Jesus. Um, so he loves Jesus and that's still the most important thing in his life. Um, owns a small business, was in China for a couple of years um, doing a bunch of stuff there and yeah, was an accountant, has written this book and he loves local church. And he has um, come to us and I, I share this carefully but I, I have checked with him. Um, we are, as I said, in an interesting financial position and he didn't know the levels of that, but out of God's grace and the way that he leads him and us, um, Joel has flown across from Perth um, paying for his own flights. He's not asked for an honorarium to speak and he has brought his own books. Um, they're $20. You can get them after the service and all the proceeds, 100% of them, go to Mustard or the other mission, mission organisations that we are a part of. This is a man that lives his message. And so we're really privileged to have Joel here um, speaking with us. He actually found out about Red while he was out hiking um, and an American backpacker said to him, hey, have you heard this church called Red in Melbourne? <laughs> He's just like, no. So an American has told a guy from Perth about a church in Melbourne. God works in crazy ways, hey. Um, but yeah, it's a real privilege to have him speak and uh, this morning. So we're going to invite him up. Thanks, uh, Brittany, for the kind words. Uh, I'm talking about money, uh, everybody's favourite topic, especially at church. Um, I um, wrote a little indie book about it um, and I brought these along with me because it's called The Barefoot uh, Disciple, um, but I am indeed um, in fully enclosed footwear. Uh, So I thought, I don't know... You never know when you come to a new church what the crowd's going to be like. Anyone's going to try and ping you on something. Um, so I thought just in case, usually um, I bring these puppies and then I can sort of flick them off um, depending on uh, what the crowd looks like. But it's too cold here in Melbourne to do that. So um, I actually changed plans this morning. All right, um, I've got a little pop quiz. Don't know you guys from... A bar of soap, really. You don't really know me. Um, So I just want to ask one question about money that I hope is going to... um, I'm going to be able to extrapolate amazing amounts of data from. Okay, this is our pop quiz. Um, What emotions does the word budget evoke in you? Right. When I say that, when you see that on the screen, what emotions does the word budget evoke? evoke in you all right we got a yuck don't use that four letter word around me we got b yay budgeting equals savings we got c yelp i feel anxious already d yahoo time to count my dollar bills all right let's do a little show of hands 
What words, um, what emotions does the word budget evoke for you? Let's have your hands up for a yuck. All right, few of you out there. No shame in that. B, yay. Man, we're a, we're a financially savvy crowd here. I know, uh, watch what I say. C, yelp. Okay, few of you too. And D, yahoo. Yeah, good. A few of you there as well. Good to see. Um, all right. Four money personalities. So the yucks, they were um, – I'm going to call you guys spenders uh, because the thought of somebody limiting uh, your financial freedom is outrageous. Um, be savers. You love boundaries, all right, when it comes to money. Spreadsheets, I can imagine going on um, – I could go on, I'm a former bean counter myself. See, yuck, that's the avoiders, okay? Better not to look, all right? And these success measures. Uh, money can be a measure uh, for success for a lot of people in a lot of um, different ways. So, it's our four money personalities, but given we're in church, and the lyrics of the songs I heard this morning, I think there's another question that we probably should be asking about the topic, and that is, what is the money personality of a follower of Jesus? All right, all of you have got your own money personalities, but what is the money personality of a follower of Jesus? Um, not a question we ask at church a whole lot. There's another way of asking that is, uh, and that would be, what are the money habits of a modern disciple? Um, and they are different to the original disciples. Um, so, um, last week I listened to uh, Britt's message and uh, she uh, popped in a little quote from me that uh, if, you're, uh, if you earn the... the full-time Australian minimum wage and you don't have dependents, uh, then you are in the top 10% of global income earners. Um, something uh, sort of that I mentioned in my book, you adjust for purchasing power parity, that's the cost of living, um, that goes to the top 20%. That's a statistic I also talk about in my book, uh, the story of a rich young ruler um, a bloke who uh, was doing pretty good um, but sadly walked away, um, had some camels, servants, a um, bunch of things going on but sadly walked away from Jesus because of his wealth. Um, and uh, I sort of talk about in my book, if we compare ourselves to him, we think that he's kind of like, you know, uh, wealthy guy, but our standard of living is probably a little bit better. I use an anecdotal example of that, and that's that he had a camel um, and I have a car. Um, his mode of transport um, both spits and smells more than mine, um, is also not very efficient. Um, and so um, I wonder when you hear those kind of statistics, uh, that kind of information, um, what impact it has on you. Um, I've been uh, doing this for a little bit of a while and I have a guess um, 
Not very much. I bet that uh, you're not going to take that information and go and change your life. I bet probably out of last week's sermon, you didn't hear that and be like, oh, I'm in the top 10%. got to like change my ways. Um, why is that? Um, I have a uh, hypothesis and that is that um, that's because these kind of things don't change your money personality and they don't change your behaviour because your behaviour is based on your habits. And so um, my goal this morning um, uh, is to try and answer this question um, but I'm not going to do a couple of things. I'm not going to try and um, sort of guilt trip you into it um, and that's not because I'm above using emotional sort of manipulation techniques um, to get the outcomes that I want. It's because I don't think it's going to work. Um, I think the only thing that's going to change, um, going to help you live like more like a disciple with money if you want to um, and, and you may not want to, um, is your habits. Um, and so today... Uh, what I've prepared is I've prepared some, um, some scripts that I believe our culture or potentially your upbringing has uh, given you about money uh, that um, give you your current money personality. I'm then going to give you some ways I think you can flip the script if you want. All right, number one. Uh, this is a script I think you've got right now. You're a consumer, not a disciple. Number two, you're a saver, not a disciple. Number three, you're a citizen or a tourist, not a disciple. And number four, you're an investor or a speculator, not a disciple. Let's kick off to the first one. Um, I'm on LinkedIn uh, and I love uh, seeing some of the trendy titles that people have these days. Um, I saw one, uh, it was, uh, you know, they're different. Um, Solutions architect, have you seen that? That's an IT guy. Um, career matchmaker, quite like that as well. It's a recruiter. Um, Imagineer, um, I don't even know what that is. Um, uh, but imagine if we had honest LinkedIn titles. You know, what would they look like? Sometimes you get the other type that tell you what they're like. I'm into helping humans, um, you know, and organisations find synergy. All right, something like that. But what if you had uh, sometimes you have um, seeking new uh, opportunities? What if you put instead the honest title, unemployed? All right. Um, what, if, what about if you put in what you're about? I'm open to get, getting paid the maximum amount for the minimum amount of work that I have. All right, how's that for a LinkedIn, honest LinkedIn title? But um, I can tell you if the economists in Australia were to put a, a, a label or a badge for you as a person, to describe your identity, who you are and what you do, they have one for you. And that one is homo economicus, all right? And that is the economic person, 
The economic person is somebody who has one goal in life and that goal is to maximise consumption. Okay, max, all right. Pretty much all of our modern economic theory is based on this premise. Homo economicus, the consumer. And so the consumer maximising consumption is the primary identity that economists and the government and um, corporations think that you have. They reckon, you know, you think that you're a free-thinking person, independent, doing what you want. They're like, no, nah, no, you're not. Uh, they're like, we can predict your behaviour based on this theory and that will be to maximise consumption. And Paul of Tarsus, he kind of says that, yeah, without God, that's not a, that's not a bad guess. Um, he talks about the sarks. That's a Greek word for flesh, sometimes selfish desire. It's the desire in you. And he talks about that humans usually descend to predictable instinctive behaviour um, without, you know, without this kind of divine spark. Um, that's kind of uh, what we get. So um, let me show you uh, hopefully quickly um, how they do that well. How, so um, can, can, uh, consumer culture didn't create this uh, inner homo economicus, this inner consumer in you, but it sure did stoke the flames of the fire and put it on steroids in our modern culture. Um, to make it as big and as strong and as dominant part of our personality as it possibly could. Let me show you an example uh, using Charles Duhigg's uh, habit loop. And I'm going to take you back to when I was in year eight and I wore, I committed the heresy of wearing Kmart branded clothes to my private school camp in year eight, all right? Didn't know anybody else there, rocked up with this other brand and the other blokes in my dorm room, dorm room weren't having it. And I felt insecure uh, because they all had these cool kind of surf, Persa surf culture, these kind of surf and skate brands. And I had, you know, the Anko equivalent, <laughs> all right? Um, and, um, and I felt insecure. So what did I do about my insecurity? I, that was the cue that triggered me to action. I went in, into a routine and that was to go shopping for slightly more trendy clothes. Uh, and then I got the reward that I hoped for and as I felt slightly less insecure, slightly more confident. And so this kind of habit loop, um, as uh, I believe, is a consumer identity habit loop. And this is on play, I reckon, not 24-7, but all of your waking hours. We all have this feedback loop that comes from buying stuff. We get highs from what we buy. Um, I've been, I don't usually, people don't usually comment on my appearance, but I've been with my female friends, they get on a plane and somebody's like, oh, I like your shoes. Um, you go to a, 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 um, a wedding, um, you know, love your dress, you look lovely in it. Um, there's a feedback loop that comes from, oh, I bought that shoes, that dress. 
Um, that's nice. As guys, sometimes less into clothing, sometimes more into cars. I drove a crappy car for a number of years. My cousin can attest to that. And then um, v- uh, sort of recently when I started Latour de Barefoot on the east coast over here, um, I got a, uh, a cool car, a little um, Suzuki Jimny, uh, jungle green, sick roof racks, <laughs> all right? And I went from never having a positive comment about my car to I'd rock up at places and say, oh, hey, cool car, Joel. Uh, there's a feedback loop going on in there, right? If you didn't, if, to feel important, maybe that's the cue. I wanted to feel important. Um, and there was other factors in, in, in my example. But um, then there's a routine. I bought something and the, re- and the reward was somebody made me feel important. They paid attention. Um, and, you, and this feedback loop is going on all of the time and it's so embedded that it's, um, it's in our culture. It's everywhere. Um, I have an example about um, diamond rings uh, in my book and how De Beers Diamond Corporation entrenched that in culture and they did something genius. They associated worths, status and love um, and something even more primal than love, the fear of not being loved uh, into their product. Um, a friend of mine read, uh, read that uh, part in, actually listened to that part in the audio book. She sent me a text she said, lol, diamond rings, don't you know the bigger the ring, the better the marriage? I said, evidently not. <laughs> um, so that's where we are. We're consumers as our default identity. How are you going to push back on that and become a disciple? Um, as you, All right, I've got one, I reckon, biggest one that I can say, we're on to the solution side here, and that is to set a spending benchmark. That sounds really boring, all right? That sounds really bean counterish, all right? But it's not. It's groundbreaking. It's crazy. And very few people do it, all right? This is not a budget. Um, pretty much every Bible teacher, they say, uh, God owns everything, where is stewards or trustees, managers, all right? But nobody puts in a remuneration structure that reflects that. All of our remuneration structures are that of owners, less a 10% license fee to the big guy, all right, who spiritually money launders the other, you know, 90% clean for us. Okay, a spending benchmark is the is the equality of believers um, is the equality amongst believers that Paul talks about. It's getting paid like your pastor, um, and I don't know your guys' pastors, but I know most pastors. Um, they don't get it into it for the money, um, and if they did, they weren't very smart. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, Where was I? (laughs) (laughs) The biblical model is stewardship, but you've got to set up a remuneration structure that reflects that. Equality among believers. I've watched enough Jordan Peterson to know that the equality of outcomes is a bad thing, all right? But 
equality among believers, that is saying that you and me, what God gave us, what we, what we can earn, you know, that we take it with a grain of salt. You know, that there were forces outside our control that contributed to that. And that really belongs to God. And I say, maybe you're a high-powered lawyer, um, a doctor, maybe you're making good money, maybe you're an influencer, something making even better money. Um, I just say, you know, you say, I worked hard for it. I, you know, I do, I hustle, um, all those kind of things. So that's good. But I just say, you know, let's put you in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa 300 years ago. Let's see you monetize that. You know, it's just we live on, on the shoulders of giants. And, and one thing to push back on your consumer identity is to set a spending benchmark and to say, hey, hey I'm going to objectively, this is not subjective budget for yourself, I'm going I'm to live on the same amount as these other people in my community. And it's going to be objectively um, below my means and generous. All right. It's not going to be as bad as you think as well. The law of the diminishing returns tells us that, um, you know, when you, um, you get a lot more utility out of just satisfying your basic needs and wants, those additional things that you kind of the upgrades, they're cents in the dollar. Um, you invest that with your spiritual family overseas or people that can make real difference. It really, um, I really believe you feel better actually emotionally um, than, uh, than spending on yourself. All right, there's two more. Uh, if you're serious about it, you want to be a disciple rather than a consumer, you've got to um, set a spirit, you've got to appoint a spiritual account. And that's just somebody to keep you accountable um, and you've got to measure it. If you only measure, you will be guided towards the things that you measure. Right? If you only measure career or other things like that or accumulating money you wonder why you focus on that and the second one is um, the other one is community uh, I don't reckon you guys have much of a chance if you try and do this by yourselves um, but if you've got a critical mass of people around you who make disciple living with money a thing of honor rather than a thing of shame which is what it currently is in most places I reckon you might have a fighting chance. All right, that's flipping the script number one. Um, differences between a minimalist, all right, that could probably make you a minimalist. What are the differences between being a disciple and a minimalist? I'm going to say giving, and that's what this next part is about. Okay, so maybe you're not the spender type. Maybe you're more of a saver, and uh, for, you, um, for you not spending is kind of easy. Uh, but... Giving might still be really hard for you. Um, and then for the spender types, giving is probably hard for you for different ways. Every time you give, you forego some other consumption ex expenditure. And that consumption expenditure, expenditure, you had this positive feedback loop about it, that feeling um, that felt good. And so um, I'm going to talk about a couple of emotional barriers for givers, spenders and avoiders. All right, firstly, spenders. Um, when you buy something, you get a dope hit. All right, when you give, you often don't. 
Um, there's a whole consumer experience that's been designed for you that often hasn't been designed in giving. Second thing is corporations have locked you into a spending cycle um, and giving often hasn't. Um, you know, they change the plug on you every few uh, years and they... Um, what else do they do? They do lots of things. They make you upgrade because it's your device is now unusably slow. Um, okay, the other thing is there's the tangibility. You can touch, see and feel what you buy. You can't necessarily touch, see, feel or experience giving. Save it. Okay, this is a, a different thing. There's a sense of accomplishment sometimes or security that you feel in your savings. All right. Now... Here's a little test. Um, do you ever, savers in the room, do you ever during your lunch break or on a Saturday morning, do you open your phone banking app and look at the balance just because? <laughs> if you do, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, others of you are like, you know... <laughs> Get that away from me, you know. Um, you know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a sense of security and identity um, put in there. So I'll get a couple of antidotes for you to flip the script. Firstly, uh, for the spenders in the room, but anybody, create an alternative feedback loop. When you give to an organisation like Compassion, you feel like a superstar, okay? For 50 bucks a month, you come and you change a child's life um, you know their name and their face and the community, you write letters. Um, and there's other forms of giving where you kind of give and then it's gone. Like there's no feedback loop. It doesn't come back around, apart from them sending you an email maybe later on. Um, but if you want to game it in your favour, think about um, if you struggle with that, think about using the same techniques with a, something like um, a Compassion Child Sponsorship because they're not that easy to cut, <laughs> okay? It's easy to change, uh, to not give as much money in the plate. I grew up, we used to hand a plate around. It's easy to kind of um, not do that. It's not that easy to cut um, your compassion child and that's good for us. It's what we need. Um, second thing, all right, I've put in this little hook model from a book uh, called Hooked and it's a book that teaches app developers how to get their... Um, users addicted to the app and it uses a very similar model trigger that's cue action that's routine and reward that's reward um, but it adds an additional thing and this additional thing is absolutely genius and it's similar to something Jesus said almost and that is with things like Strava and Instagram social media especially um, why are many users so loyal? And why are the users that are loyal proportional to how much they post? And it's because they're invested in it, all right? They're not monetarily invested in it, but they're socially and they're, and they're time invested in it. They put so much into it. It's like your child if you're a parent, okay? You, you, your child comes home from daycare or school, they painted something. It's not very good, but you're super proud, all right? You're proud because you're invested in them. You love them. You've seen them from um, when they were a little, um, when, when they were born, okay? Jesus talks about this um, in another way, 
And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, it's descriptive, but it's also prescriptive. Right? It describes it, yeah, where your treasure is, but it also predicts. So I'm going to say to you, where your treasure is, I don't know you from a bar of soap, where your treasure is, I'm going to bet in five years' time, in ten years' time, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is invested in the kingdom of heaven, if your treasure is invested in um, a compassion child sponsor in your local church, I reckon your heart will also get dragged along and be invested in there also. So if you're a saver, you find it hard to give um, to other people, just remember that, think about that and try and um, pull your heart along a little bit um, and then use that new feeling to your advantage. Um, a lot of time giving gets kind of too mundane and routine. Uh, we got the it's, it goes on autopilot. That's a good thing. We want it to be on autopilot. But the problem is new purchases. There's this sense of excitement and new possibilities when you open it up. What's it going to bring to my life? Um, so um, so add that with your giving. Have a kingdom investment fund. Money set aside for you to do that kind of giving. That's not the main meal, right? You're recurring giving to your local church, other organisations, um, maybe mission or uh, ministry workers. That's your main meal. But it's important as well to have dessert um, and enjoy that. And that's the kind of thing there. Um, you know, you, you, um, your ex-student calls you up. Um, from China and she tells you about her financial situation now she's been ripped off through a scam through a medical scam um, when she was studying in the UK and you say all right I can pay your rent for a while that's where you get that money from and I bet that kind of thing that gets you falling in love with giving because it's the creative edge of it um, and then know them by name um, I gotta keep moving okay um because I want to get through all four. I didn't get through all four in the first um, service. Um, um, important question. What was the most famous line in the 1970, uh, sorry, the 1997 cult classic, The Castle? Let's hear it. Tell him he's dreaming. Love that. I heard it straight to the pool room. House of Serenity. What's that? <laughs> so many, but I picked a different one because I'm a bean counter and it served my purposes more for this, for this message. A man's home is his castle. All right, is that, quint is that a little bit too close to home, quintessentially Australia? I think it's I – think, I think in a city like Melbourne, you're past the point of being told that there is an – idle aspect to home ownership and investment here. I th I, I, I'm from Perth, you know, it's not as bad over there. Um, but from what I understand of here and then Sydney, it's on steroids, um, is that there's a – and we got – guys, we have so much land, very few people, and somehow we've got the second, you know, highest household debt in the world. Um, something's going on. And it's not the only reason. 
Um, and I don't want to reduce it to that. Um, but it is one of them. Um, and so a lot of us, we well, all of us, we're born into a culture that's very property, home ownership centric. And it's kind of, that's really important. Um, but it's not where most people start. Most people start in our culture with a tourist mentality. What does a tourist do? It, it comes to a place, they take a few snaps, they eat a few meals, and they enjoy a few experiences, and then they move on. Right? So a lot of us in our 20s, early 20s maybe, we, we kind of this tourist mentality of life. Uh, we're just here, take a few snaps, have a good time, um, have a good time, not a, what I'm here for a good time, not a long time, um, that kind of thing, and then move on. And then we move sometimes in our 30s and it's just like into the idol of home ownership. <laughs> um, and I don't think the Bible um, does either. Um, I think the home, the homeowner, that's a citizen mentality. This is, this is my land. I own this. And the tourist is just here. I, I think check your residency status. I think that your last time I checked, I think, I, I, think, I think you're a temporary resident. Okay, Hebrews 11 talked about that. Our citizenship is not here. It's somewhere else. Our wealth is, our main wealth is not here. It's somewhere else. So to flip the script on um, either a tourist mentality or um, um, idolization of home, um, that's the first thing. Second thing, the banker is not your friend, all right? Um, sorry if there's any bankers in here, you could be our friends. Um, but in this context, okay, um, they're not the right person to be giving you financial advice and secondly, spiritual advice. That when they give you the maximum amount you can borrow, all right, that, that, that's in their vested interest to make as much money from you. Okay, um, so it's so I just advocate really strongly before you find out how much you can borrow. I know it's a different market right now, and we want them to give us more than they're willing to give us. But um, but setting your spending benchmark and what and what you want to live on um, before you go and talk talk to them and how much you could get, I think is um, a really good antidote remember ralph um this is a guy ralph's not his real name i put him in the book um this guy was an ip lawyer and he was a partner of a law firm i visited his house and it was so humble and i was just like man i know where this guy's money is <laughs> the part-time pastor in this church um didn't didn't call attention to it or anything like that but it you know he knew where his main citizenship was and if you have to move, sorry, I had to put that in there. <laughs> uh, share market, last one, and I'm going to wrap up. How am I doing for time? All right. If you invested $1,000 in the share market tomorrow, who would that money be transferred to? Open question. Sorry? Borrowers, yeah. Any other answers? Amazon. <laughs> All right, here's what you think happens. You think it goes to the company, Amazon, that build more stores and staff. Okay, here's what really happens. Your money goes to another investor, um, not the company. All right, we'll come back to that. So let's talk about a few investing personalities. 
Now, there's probably a couple in the room. I want to do a full spectrum here. Um, first one, the risk it for the biscuit types. You know who you are. All right, these are the type. Um, what are the, what's the motivation? Um, there's the only fear is the fear of missing out <laughs> for these people, all right? That's the only fear, but it's mostly motivated by getting rich quick. I want, it, I want, it, I want, it, I want more and I want it now. Um, I want to flip something. This is the startup. I'm a, I'm a startup guy. This is the startup guys that are more about the exit than they are about the business they're starting, right? Tons of people in the startup world that are like that. Um, the slow and steady win, wins the race type, all right? You're talking ETFs here, um, uh, a, a lot of you. Um, you know, you've kind of, uh, you're kind of risk averse, but you're not as risk averse as the money under the pillow type. Okay, what's what are the psychologies behind this? This is kind of like sort of slow and steady, responsible uh, sort of investing. Money under the pillow is like that, fear driven, right? Um, pretty much, um, and so there's these different fears um, that affect often our money personality, and then there's the investing is a game type. You can probably guess. Um, who I am up here. Um, and that's your kind of your Warren Buffett types. They got so much money, they don't care. It's about bragging rights. Um, they just want to be right. They want a 10 bagger, as they call it. Um, and it's not because they're going to do anything with the money. Um, it's just because um, there's this thing of pride in there, right? Pride about being better than somebody else. And uh, investing just happens to be their game. Um, what are the antidotes? A commitment to work. When I did this, it just revolutionised my life because I'm I'm into startups. I'm in I'm an in investor. Um, here's the the uh, what I believe that sort of what most of us feel the problem. Work is toil. Um, Genesis three talks about. I hope it was Genesis three. Uh, somewhere between Genesis one and three. Um, um, we find it meaningless. It's, it's hard. It's labour. Here's what every other personal finance book tells you to do. All right? Given that, let's try and avoid work. Let's try and, you know, real life is in early retirement, in leisure, in travel. Um, because work is dirty. The Greeks, in a Greek myth, they would have never said that they worked in paradise. They would have thought in paradise. They would have talked in paradise. They would not have worked. The Hebrew idea, Y-H-W-H, that's Yahweh, is redeemed work. They did work in paradise. And so I think a really healthy way for you to, if you're a kind of risk-it-for-the-biscuit type investor, Investor mentality. A really healthy way is a commitment to work the rest of your able-bodied days. And it just changes the whole conversation about what you're going. You do, you, you do not exist for your hobbies. You exist here for a purpose, a God purpose. Um, this just really helps. And I don't mean paid work. Okay, I don't mean to elevate paid work amongst other, other types of work. 
Um, but a commitment to work is an awesome antidote to a get-rich-quick mentality. Second is a bias towards impact investing. Impact investing um, is where you invest in an organisation that rather than cashing out another investor, takes that money and actually does something with it, all right? And hopefully something positive. The more positive social and spiritual outcomes they do, the better. I wish I could recommend um, uh, Christian Super in this space. They used to be in this space. Sadly, they got shut down by the government. Um, that's another story. Um, slightly um, unfair in my perspective, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. Three, love yourself as your neighbour rule. Maybe you're a crypto bro and you're kind of like, yeah, whatever. Um, I got a really easy way. Just love your neighbour as yourself. If you do uh, blow up with the next big crypto coin, uh, which is another conversation, put it in the questions, um, you know, how about you commit to love your neighbour with yourself with those gains as much as yourself? Isn't that our call from Jesus in the Gospels? I'm talking 50%. Um, gift match it. Um, commit half of it. I reckon it's going to change your mentality and your investing personality. All right, recap. We've tried to, tried to take you from consumer to disciple with spending, from spender and saver to disciple with giving, from tourist or citizen to disciple with your shelter and from investor or speculator to disciple with investing. Um, but to finish, um, that's a lot of information. The focus of my content is to mostly tell you, understand a bit about your money personality and try and tell you how because I find in churches often we talk about the motivation, the theology is good, but people often don't know how. So that's the focus of this. But I know as I say all of this stuff, if you don't have a spark, an inspiration, something inside of you, then it's just all head knowledge. And so I just share a story. Um, I used to live in China. Uh, I was an English teacher over there and I also studied... Uh, in my part in uh, in my spare time, and uh, one time, uh, the teacher in the class I was sitting in on came over to me and she said, "Hey, you're from Australia. Do you have a charity for people with cancer? Um, because that girl sitting over there in your class, her mum has cancer, and they can't afford." This is, this is a user pays system, uh, medical system over here. Um, and so I said, oh, okay, I don't know if there's any charity that would take, over, take on uh, a Chinese student living in northern, northeast China um, in Australia would do that. But I said, I'm a Christian and I'll ask my church back home if they can rally together a bit of money for the next round of treatment. She was having chemo and... Um, and I went back, called home, called Dad. He sort of rallied the troops a bit. They sold, a, you know, old bikes and then they managed to get the money um, for this next round of treatment. But a um, few people from the church went around. Um, the lady put her faith in God. Um, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know how 
what that looked like exactly. Um, but then there was another round. And then I said to the group I was with in China, I said, hey, this is a situation. Do you reckon we could rally together? We could pay for it. And again, they did it. Um, wasn't a small amount of money. Um, but then a month or two later, I was about to go um, back to Australia. And I've been a bit of an entrepreneur, as I like to think, for a while. And I thought that the Aussie dollar was going to depreciate against the uh, renminbi. And I thought that if I put my Aussie dollars, I was going to wait till the dollar went down and I was going to convert it back and I was going to make a little tidy profit for myself. And I, didn't, I had about half of my life savings. And I was a student at the time, so that wasn't um, that much money. Um, but it came around to the third cancer treatment and, I, you know, Talk to people back home, you know, they've never met her before. There's you know, how much, how long are we going to keep doing this? I talked to people in my group, we didn't really raise anything. And then um, I was like, sorry, um, I'm sorry I've done what I can, but um, yeah, we don't have the money for you for this last round of treatment. Um, and I got on the plane and I went back home. I started thinking about it. I'm like, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> like, what, like, what am I going to buy with that money <laughs> that's more important than this? Like, what am I, like, I going to do? With, what am I going to invest in it, you know, that's more important than... This situation, I didn't create this situation, I, f I fell into it. Um, but I didn't want to do it. <laughs> um, so I sent her an email, I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, you know, at the beginning of the year I transferred this amount of money but it was for, it was for me to translate it back. The currency hasn't, hasn't gone yet, um, hasn't made the move I think it was going to move, do. Um, but I said, I'm sorry, I held on to it. Um, but I should have given it to you. I actually, I said that we didn't have it, but we did. <laughs> I did. Um, and I sent it to her. Um, there are some moments where, with money, where I think you're like, yeah, this is more important. Um, and we catch a higher vision about what it's for. And I, I caught one that day. Um, I don't know what your higher vision is for how you live with your money. Um, but, I, but I know it's higher than being a consumer. I know it's higher than being a speculator. I know it's higher than being a saver. Let's give Joel a round of applause. Thank you. We thought it'd be great to do a quick Q&A with you. Uh, there's been some great questions sent through. The first one, which is um, a great question, what motivates you personally to give? Yeah, um, I a couple of different things. I was just blessed um, to grow up with a sister who 
was dialed into another wavelength on this kind of stuff. And she, um, she embodied a phrase called, um, and I think Gandhi said it, um, uh, to live simply so others can simply live. Um, and I, yeah, it just, um, she, she changed simple living and habitual giving to to a, from a thing of shame to a thing of honor um, for me, and I was blessed. And then I went to China, and I just uh, and they told me I was rich, um, even though I didn't think I was. Um, I was getting youth allowance; uh, that was my only source of income over there. Um, and yeah, I think those couple of things have carried through um, through with me here. Great. Um, for young adults, there is an increasing narrative of scarcity. How do we combat this narrative when there are some real consequences of giving radically? Yeah, um, not everything about the scarcity mindset is bad. Um, I think we, we live in a generation that has never seen war and a, and a bunch of things. And so th there are some people that could do with a little bit more scarcity in their life, um, scarcity mindset, but, but not too far um, I, I think because um, because that feeling of holding on, and when I talked to Dad about my startup, he was like, "Oh, you know, you you better not follow your dreams. <laughs> you better follow the you know the steady paycheck." And that when it affects those kind of decisions, I'd say equally um, that when scarcity is affecting your decisions not to live out the you know what you're calling, not to you know, um, then, then that's a real problem. Um, what's worked for me is um, habitual giving. Um, and so that's habitual giving is not just like emotional, feeling it in the moment. It's, it's, it's sort of day in, day out. And then kind of first 10%, so, um, so kind of trusting that you're going to make ends meet with the rest. Uh, if, if, if you put the first fruits of the harvest um, before the Lord. And then I think you kind of build confidence that, yeah, I'm going to survive. Often a lot of people say, I can't survive. Um, and that's kind of a scarcity mindset in there. But, yeah, um, just bringing those, um, yeah, the first fruits before the Lord and just, you know, but before you budget anything else or you bucket anything else. Yeah. Great. Um in uh, Mark 10, yep. 25, it talks, Jesus talks about it's easier for a camel to yeah. go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. Yep. How does that impact our attitude to money? Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest, I, I don't think it's impacting many Christians. Uh, I, 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 in Australia, I, I think we kind of, because we compartmentalise that guy to somebody else, um, not us. Um, so um, I think it's... It's way harder. Let me double down here. It's way harder for you um, to walk through the eye of, to, you know, to not fall off the bandwagon because of your wealth, um, consumer culture, than it was for them. They were in a small community um, that wasn't consumeristic, right? And he said that to a rich guy back then. Um, it's, it's got dialed up way higher right now. So, so, so my things is like, hey... Realise that the odds are stacked against you. 
right? If it was stacked against that guy, it's way more stacked against you. Um, and so you've got to do some things about it. Um, and that's probably, you know, if you want to take action, that's, that's more than you know, listening to a sermon on a Sunday. Um, it's um, following content, appointing a spiritual disciple. It's going on a journey. With it. It's realising that you're going to fall off and then you want somebody else to, you know, there's just, um, it's a complex problem. So it's, it, it's not a simple, I don't want to give a simplistic solution, but it is, it's a journey. Yeah. Mm. I think this next question perhaps gives yep. a little bit of, could speak to a bit more. Yep. Um, any tips on how to determine your spending limit? It's often easy to convince yourself yeah. uh, of things that you want uh, versus things that you need. Glad that you asked. Um, <laughs> So I would just say uh, make it objective. Um, the, the generosity is such a fluffy term um, and everybody has their own definition. Um, you know, I signed up for the you know, church roster once a month. I'm being generous. Um, that, that is good, but uh, um, keep doing that. <laughs> Do more. Um, so set an objective benchmark. So uh, I talk about in my book, Couple of Ones, uh, if you live on the Australian minimum wage, that's top 10% of income earners in Australia. If you're on median wage, another obje- objective benchmark, you're, you're in the um, top 5% of global income earners, but you're in the top uh, 50% of Australian income earners. So, uh, so I just encourage you to make it an objective benchmark. Uh, most people say you've got to do something extreme at the beginning to, to kind of boot camp your way out of your current addiction. Um, so, um, so I suggest minimum wage for that. Um, uh, but that's for somebody without dependence, right? I'm not talking about people who've got um, two kids or single, uh, single income. We've got other dependents. It's not. Uh, so talk about that in the book. Great. Live on min for a year. Um, yeah. Um, there's still a bunch more questions, but we might, um, might wrap it up there. But yeah, thank you again so much. It's been such a privilege to have you join us. 